Good morning. Welcome to Southwards. We are honored and glad that you are here this morning. That was tremendous singing. What a great job this morning. You guys just sang out. That was fantastic. Really, really enjoyed that. Just to sing some new songs, but then just to pour out your heart and soul and the music was fantastic. Great job. We're going to be in John chapter number nine. If you have your Bible this morning, uh, John chapter number nine. If you don't, the words will be up on the screen. It was also in your worship guide as you came in this morning. John chapter number nine, or you can pull out your mobile device, iPad. Maybe you have some papyrus or something from ancient manuscripts or something. Whatever you've got, that'll work. We're glad that you are here. Well, do you feel good this morning? You look good. You look good. All right. Yeah. Getting started this morning. Well, we're in a series. This is the third installment of a series we've entitled Christian. And uh, really, it's more than just a label. Isn't it amazing how many people today say they're a Christian? How many people will tell you, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. And then you kind of try to get them to define that. And they're just like, well, I'm a good person. You know, I help little old ladies across the street. And, um, you know, I I, I don't do a lot of bad stuff, just just a little bit. And so there's a lot of confusion when it comes to this topic of Christianity. And some people are confused not only what is a Christian, but also how to become a Christian. And last week, we looked at the passage of John chapter number 3. Nicodemus, the Pharisee Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. And it was there that Jesus explained to him how to become a Christian. It wasn't because he got baptized, and it wasn't because uh, his daddy was a pastor, and it wasn't because his mama said a prayer over him. It was his decision, and it was an important decision, a life-changing, life-altering decision that each and every one of us, I hope, have made or will make in our life. And so as we continue this series about Christian, we are diving into these topics. Uh, we really notice that it's amazing. As you read the Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that people who were unlike Jesus, they liked Jesus. Isn't that amazing? People who were as different as you could possibly imagine from Jesus, they liked Jesus. So the question is this, why is it that so many people like Jesus but can't stand his followers? And is it because we've lost sight of what it means to truly be a Christian? Matter of fact, we said it in week number one, I think we've settled for being a Christian instead of understanding that we're called to be more than that. Jesus called us this, he called us his disciples, which meant a follower, a student, a pupil, one that followed and did what Jesus said. And Jesus even said this. He said, this, all men shall know you by this. When you're my disciples, they're going to know you because you have love one for another. And so you and I, I think, have lost sometimes this heartbeat that, you know, all the good, that's great, but without love, that's what it comes down to. It comes back to this love that we need to have. Well, this, this Sunday's message was really born out of a phone call that I got from uh, one of of, uh, you are wonderful members, and um, they were asking me a question about the case of Maddie Middleton. Some of you may be familiar with the Maddie Middleton. She was the eight-year-old little girl who was uh, lured into an apartment and um, murdered, and her lifeless body was left in a dumpster. And the horror of horrors, not only is that just a horrible story, but the fact that it was a 15-year-old boy just made it just... I, I, I don't know if that didn't affect anybody. It was just so heavy. And he called me and he said, how is it that a God that we believe is all-powerful and a God that we believe is in control, how did that happen? And you see, when we talk about Christianity, we need to embrace questions like that. 
Because I think too often we see a hard question like that, and we want to run. We want to run and say, well, 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 I, I don't do know God was, uh, I, and, and we just, we stall and we, we're looking for an out. And this is the type of questions I think those of you that have uh, jobs in the workforce, your coworkers and your boss and your employees, or maybe your own children, they're asking you these hard questions. And I, I'm not afraid of these questions. These don't scare me. These don't shake my faith. Matter of fact, the hard questions help shake, shape my faith. They don't shake it. They shape our faith. And so this morning, this title of the message is simply, When Hope is on the Ropes. And we're going to be dealing with this topic of God is in control. And when you hear that, for some of you, that's a good thing. You, you, you hear God is in control, and, and, and you're just like, oh yeah, that, that's a good thing. For some of you, that may not necessarily be a good thing. Well, or I could say it like this. We like the fact that we hear that, hey, God is in control, But it really depends on who tells us that, doesn't it? Uh, Let's say for a moment that you've just lost your job, your house is about to be repossessed, and some 21-year-old who's never really worked a real job, can't even pay for college, still lives at home with his parents, doesn't even hold a job at Starbucks, comes up to you and says, hey, God's in control. You're like, shut up, idiot, before I stab you in the face with a number two pencil. You know, you're just kind of like, that's not very comforting. It just, that's, that's not. But... If somebody who comes up to you, who you know, they've had a hard life, they've lived a long time, they've suffered some things, they've gone through some difficulties, and they've lost some people along the way, and they've got some bumps and bruises and scars, and they come up to you, and they tell you God's in control, all of a sudden it means something. Because it depends very much who's telling you. Because one is speaking from experience. The other one is just speaking from just a bad answer. It's just kind of what you say. They haven't experienced it. So when we talk about God is in control, we want to dive into it and see what it means this morning. So let's go to the word of God in John chapter number 9, verse number 1. Here's what the Bible says. And Jesus passed by. He saw a man which was blind from his birth. And this is interesting what his disciples say in verse number 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because, I mean, there's got to be a reason you curse that dude because he must have done something bad or his mommy or his daddy did something bad. So oh, we really like to know some juicy gossip. Isn't that just like some Christians? We just want to know the gossip. We don't want to help you. We just want to know how you got into that mess and what's all the junk going on in your life. And we're just nosy like that. And, 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 but we shared in a prayer request, though. Pray for this person. This person's going through all this mess, and that's how we spread our gossip and everything. And so here's the disciples wanting in on the juicy details in this verse. And it's kind of funny that they were thinking, hey, this, is, this had to happen because of sin. I mean, he, you wouldn't have just cursed a perfectly good person. It had to do, they had to have done something wrong. So notice verse number two, the disciples, he's, they asked this question, why did this happen or, or why? And that's the question we would look at a Matt Middleton, and we would say, why, God? Why? There's got to be a reason, right? There's got to be a reason. Verse number three. Jesus answered, neither have this man sinned nor his parents. And this is powerful. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. But that God would see some good out of it. But that God would get some glory out of this. That God would take this horrible tragedy, this horrible situation, and God is saying, hey, I didn't cause this, but I can use this. And some of you are looking at your situation and saying, hey, God, where are you in this? And God's saying, hey, you got to understand, you live in a sin-sick, broken world. Things happen. Life happens. 
but I can still use it. Jesus continues. Verse number five. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spit on the ground. Imagine you're getting kind of nervous if you're this blind man. And he made clay of the spit, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now, it's interesting. Jesus had healed several blind people. Up until this time, this is the first time where he spits on the ground and makes clay and then starts rubbing it in the guy's eye. Now, sometimes we read scripture and we just kind of read it over. But think for a moment. You're blind, okay? You can't see. But your sense of hearing is very acute. So all of a sudden, you hear somebody go, and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, what's coming? Like, (laughs) you know, it's not like he's the the, the blind kung fu master, so he knows where it's coming from. No, no, no. He's like, okay, this is not good. You know, Jesus, how about you just speak the word of healing instead of continuing with what I think you're doing? All of a sudden, he hears that, and then he hears the spit hit the ground, and then, He hears Jesus kneel down, and he's thinking, okay, all right. Jesus is doodling. Jesus is playing in the mud, making some mud pies. Hopefully he doesn't want me to eat that or or, or do anything with that. And this poor blind guy just standing there just thinking, okay, this is Jesus. I've heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, he's, he's raised dead people to life. He's given deaf people their hearing. He's done all kinds of great miracles. He's fed thousands of people. This is Jesus. He can do anything, but but why is he um, um, making uh, mud pies in the ground right now, and then all of a sudden you're this poor blind guy, and then you feel somebody kind of get close, and then you feel this mud in your eye. Now, any of you germaphobes out there would know you don't want mud in your eye, let alone somebody's mud that was made from spit, okay, rubbing all up in your face. This is just not a pleasant feeling. And here's this poor blind guy just thinking, what in the world? Like, is this just insult to injury? Like, what's going on? I mean, I'm already blind. Do you have to make my life worse? Sometimes things in your life will seem worse before they actually get better. And sometimes we just want to live with the reality like, it's going to get better sometimes. It's just going to get better. Um, any of you that know that you're on a diet or something, it gets worse before it gets better, doesn't it? It gets worse. It's like, oh, man, we're out to dinner, and I, gotta, I can't have the dessert. No, i got to only have water or green tea. And, man, there's my stomach's hurting, and I'm hungry right now. It only gets worse before it gets better. Or some of you have gone in for an operation, and the doctor says, we've got to operate. We've got to cut here. We've got to snip here. We've got to do this. It only gets worse before it gets better. But so many times, Christians, we just want better. Skip the worse. But sometimes we need to understand that there's going to be a little bit of worse before it gets better. But God is always in control. He's always in control. So continue reading. Here's what the passage says. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said unto him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Now, just think about this for a second, okay? You're a blind guy that's now got to go find this pool. Maybe he found somebody to guide him. But now as he's walking along through the city or toward this pool, what do you think people notice about this guy? That he's got dirt and mud in his eyes the whole time. I've noticed you and I, we, we sometimes, we don't want to stand out, do we? We don't want to look a little bit different. We want to blend in. We want everything to be, we want Jesus to do miracles the way we want them done. Like, Jesus, yeah, take care of my finances, but you make my boss give me a bonus. 
How about that way? Instead of saying, you know what? I'm just going to make those tire those tires in your car last a little bit longer. I know you want the latest iPhone, but I'm going to make the iPhone you have work a little bit longer. We want God to just say, no, 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 just bless me. But really what that reveals is our desire to be in control and not God's. Here was a man who said, I'm willing to walk through the city with this junk in my eyes. Man, this is, this is going along, and I'm preaching, and it's just the introduction. I got I to gotta keep going. We might be here all day, and you don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. So we got to keep on moving, all right? Here we go. So he's walking through the city. He's got mud in his eyes, and he came against seeing. Verse number 8, the neighbors therefore, and they which had seen him, and he that was blind said, Is not this he that sat and begged? They were doubting. Something's changed about this guy. I mean, you could see, is this the same person? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said he unto him, how are thine eyes opened? He answered and said, a man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes. And he said unto me, go to the pool of Shalom and wash. And I went and I washed and I received sight. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come to church this morning. And I pray that you would speak to hearts and lives who are wrestling with the tension that you're in control, even when the world seems like it's out of control. And I pray this morning you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would encourage. I pray that we would find a new and renewed faith and trust and hope in you. And I pray that you would do what I simply cannot do. I pray that your word would come alive to hearts. I pray that you would meet a need that I'm not aware of. And I pray that people would tune in. I pray the distractions would be gone, and I pray that you would use this message in a mighty way. We love you. We pray this, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you. Take a moment and stand, and I want you to do this. You've got to find three people and give them a high five. Three people. Find three people. Give them a high five and tell them you look good this morning. Good to see you. Find three people. Greet one another. Say hello, because I need to get a drink. Once you've done that, find your seat, find your seat. Looking forward to just having a great time in God's house this morning. But we're talking about this subject of control, of control. And a lot of times, you and I, we struggle with this because we like to be the one that's in control. We don't like to be out of control because some of you in this room, you're the type that you always have to drive the car. You can't ride in the car unless you're driving the car. And uh, you're the type that if you're in the room where the television is, you have to hold the remote. You can't be in the room and not have the remote because you are what we call a control freak. Okay, but it's church, so we'll be nice, so we won't call you that out loud, but you are a control freak, and so you you know who you are, you know that you struggle with these things, and so this morning, though, a message when you hear God is in control is not always easy to hear, because you are the type that you just feel like, I've got to control every situation and every outcome, and it's very difficult, but we need to see in this morning, this message, we see that we need this Christ-centered confidence, but how does a Christ-centered confidence come into our lives, and it's starts very simply and it starts back here because you need to see that we're talking about our faith and we're talking about building our faith and shaping our faith and our faith is not represented by what or is not tested by your arguments a lot of times I would get into an argument with somebody trying to prove my faith that it exists 
trying to tell people that what I believe about God and what I believe about what we're supposed to do is true, and I would try to get into arguments. I went to a Bible college, and that's what you would do. You would just argue with people because you thought you knew it all. You didn't know anything, but you just thought you knew it all, so you just get into arguments with people, and you, you would argue about the sovereignty of God, and you would try to get these big words just because you didn't understand it, and you would hope they didn't understand it, but if you used a big enough word, you just look smarter, so it was all about pride and arrogance and, and dumb stuff. But you were just getting these arguments. But the reality that I've learned is that our faith is not tested by our arguments, but it's really tested by our application. Because people really don't care what you know. They don't. They care about your life. They want to see that your faith is real, not because you can take me to a Bible verse. But they want you to, they want to see that your faith is real because you don't just show them a verse. You show them the difference in your life when you go through that cancer treatment. That when you went through that loss, that's when they're looking at you and that's when they say, it's real. They look at you and they see that, hey, they went through a bankruptcy. Hey, they went through a divorce. They went through separation. They went through some issues. They went through some trials. They went through some storms. They went through some difficulties. And all of a sudden, then they look at you and say, you know what? It's real with that person. And they'll say, why? Did they give you a verse? Did they preach a sermon to you? No, no, no. They didn't preach a sermon. Their life is a sermon. And when our life is a sermon, that is so much more powerful than any time where we get a verse or say, hey, you need to have this verse, you need to do this, you need to be this. God wants us to get to the point where, once again, it's our life is the sermon. That was his whole goal for the disciples. It wasn't simply that, hey, you guys know everything. He took some uh, country boys and said, hey, if you will follow me and if you will learn of me, which means to study what I do, you can shake the world. And you and I today, we need to get back to that point where it's not just that we fill our heads with knowledge. Because you know what? We live in a day and age where all the knowledge that you would ever want is stored in our pockets on our phone. Anything you want to know, you can find it out within seconds. The other day, somebody was like texting me. They were like, hey, pastor, I need this verse. And man, I was able to get this verse really quick. And they were like, wow, that was so fast. And I was like, because I used the Google machine and it worked. (laughs) And some of you are like, did he just say Google machine? I don't know. Whatever, you know. And it was, you know, and they thought, man, this guy's really good. He's really awesome. But I'm like, it's on your phone. It's not that hard to find, you know. But we've got the world's information in our pockets but it's amazing how messed up our world still is. You see, if, if knowledge alone brought about transformation, then we should be the most revolutionary, transformative society of history. But how come it seems like we're still stuck where a 15-year-old would murder and rape an 8-year-old girl and leave her lifeless body in a dumpster? Why does it seem like we're going backwards and not forwards? Because we bought the lie that knowledge is enough, that knowledge is power, that knowledge is everything we need. So we send people to school and say, you're going to make a lot of money, and you're going to know all this stuff, you're going to do all this stuff. When, when Jesus said, it's not that complicated. It's not supposed to be something that we always know. It's supposed to be something that we live. Now, knowledge is good, but it needs to go from our head to our heart. And a lot of times, I meet a lot of Christians, that they've got a lot of head knowledge but there's nothing to touch their heart. And when it hasn't touched your heart, it's not going to be real. It's not going to transfer to a world that, that really doesn't care how much you know. They want to know how much you care. They want to know that you're going to be there, not on their best day, but on their worst day. 
that you're going to show up when everybody else walks out. That's when they want to know. So we need our faith to go from concepts, ideas about God, knowledge about God, to a conviction. From concepts to conviction. Because a lot of people have these grand, lofty ideas, but they miss the conviction. They miss that it's in my heart. That this is something, this is who I am. Some of you, you're so wonderful. I'll get around you, and I love being around you because you're real. You're just that person that I'm just like, wow, if I could be like that Christian. If I could just be as loving and kind and generous. If I could just be a father like that. If I could just be a husband like that. If I could just lead people like that. And it's because you're just letting God just flow out of your heart. You take the scriptures and it's just not knowledge for you. It's not just an argument for you. It's application and it overflows in your life. And you're just running over. It's dripping off of you, just the anointing of God. And it's just real with you. And I love to get around you because I'm like, please get a little of it. You know, I'm trying to like, good luck, you know, kind of rub some off and everything because it's just evident on your life because you understand that it can't just be concepts. It's got to be a conviction. Because I find that people like the concept of Christianity. Do good to others. Be kind. God is loving. Everybody agrees with that. That's a great concept. But they're missing out on the conviction that, okay, God loves me. Why? So that I would love others. And so that others would then love God. And then they would love others. And it's a cycle. And so that we're living out of this overflow. But too often what I see is we just love to take, take, God, whatever you want to give, this is great. Just keep on pouring, keep on pouring, keep on pouring. But then we don't ever take the moment to say, wait a minute, am I living this out? I find that there are people, they love the concept of a family. They love the concept, oh, it would be great to be married, to have like 15 kids. That would just be so wonderful, and it would just be so great. But then they move out, and they're like, oh, stink, i got to pay the bills. I got to pay my rent. I got to pay for food. I got to put gas in the car. I got to pay my own cell phone bill. Really? Mom, dad, please let me back on the bill. Please. I promise I won't run up your data over a hundred, whatever, like I did last month. And it was like a thousand dollars. I promise. Please let me back on your bill. Please, please, please. Because now we love the idea. We love the concept of family. We love the concept of being out on our own. But once we actually experience, we're like, wait a minute. Hold on. It's a whole different ballgame. Don't you love it? You have your first child, and that's great. And everybody comes up to you telling you how to raise your child. And then you ask them this one profound question. Oh, really? How many children do you have? Oh, I have none. I just read it one time. Oh, can I slap you now? Because you are an imbecile. Because you don't know what you're talking about. You got this concept that you got out of a magazine, out of a book, off of YouTube, and you think you're an expert now. Why don't you get yourself some kids and you raise them? You wake up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m. You feed those kids and you go to the store not knowing that you have some droppings from your child on your clothes and you go about your day, about your business, and you don't know that you smell like that because of one of your children. And you think, this is what I signed up for. This is great. This is, this is awesome. People told me a long time ago you know what your kids they're they, they, they're, they're gonna give back so much more than they ever take liars oh no oh no they take and they take and they take they're just non-stop non-stop so somebody that says oh kids aren't they a wonderful blessed thing they are i love my kids i want like five more of them somebody please pray for my wife you know and it's just one of those things where we love the concept but when it comes to the actual grassroots the idea the the now we got to live this out That's what we struggle with. 
You see, the disciples, they loved the concept about God. They, they loved all these things, but they were missing the conviction. You see, your faith needs to go from your head down to your heart. In John chapter number 6, Jesus was out in a field, and, and the crowds came to Jesus in John chapter number 6, and Jesus fed the crowd. And right after he fed the crowd, the crowd wanted to take Jesus and make him the new king. And he said to the crowd, he said, I know why you guys want me to be your king. It's not because of the miracles. It's not because of the word. It's because you did eat of the loaves. So you like the concept of me being your king. But in the same passage, he said, hey, if you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, you have nothing to do with me. And all this, that, that same passage says, and many of his disciples ceased to follow him. Because they like the concept but not the conviction. Sometimes we like the concept of church, but we don't like the, like the hey, every Sunday, really, is every Sunday kind of deal. And, and, and you want me to serve? And you want me to greet? And you want me to go in the nursery? And, and, and you see what kind of diapers uh, some of those babies be stinking up in there? You want me to be doing that? Like, are you for real? Do you have a hazmat suit for me to wear as I change those diapers? Do you have something? Do we, do we, do we deal with this? Wow, you guys are rough this morning. The back is giving me hateful looks this morning. I'm just going to stay in the front, okay? It's not as much hateful looks. And uh, so the Bax is like, look at me. Oh, anyway, my wife loves me. That's all that matters. And so I think, right? Okay. All right. It's a good day. All right. And so you need to understand there's this concept, but we need to get from beyond the concept. And there's so many people that love Jesus from a distance, but then the closer they get to him, it's like, oh, Jesus wants me to do what? Jesus wants me to really live this out? <laughs> I don't know about that. Jesus, what are you doing for me lately? It's a one-way love. Jesus said, hey, let's take our convictions, let's take our concepts and turn those into a conviction where it's something that we believe in our hearts. You see, a lot of times we have all these, these ideas that we see about God and how do we wrestle with them. And so many times we see people that they would come to God, but there's some barriers to faith. And, uh, and, and one of them, I wrote this down, is why is, so God, uh, why is it so hard? Why is God so hard to understand sometimes? And some of you, you've been coming, you've been, you've been checking out this thing of Christianity, and, and you haven't made the decision to give your life to Christ yet. But some of the things holding you back is, why is God so difficult to understand? We come to something like Maddie Middleton, and we're thinking, God, why? And why is this so difficult? And then we have to come back to the fact that God's purpose is not confined to what we understand. That God's purpose for your life and in my life, we don't fully always understand it. Read the Old Testament. How many times did Jesus tell some, or did God lead somebody to do something that they didn't fully understand at the moment? But then God says, hey, I will reveal this to you. Because the Bible says in Isaiah 55, verses 7 and 8, for my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. For my thoughts are high as the heavens. God sees above us. God sees beyond. He sees around. And God sees what is best for you and I. But you and I get hung up on the concept. And we say, God, my concept of you is not fitting this situation. And God said, it's not because I'm wrong. It's because your concept is wrong. You need to once again see me in a different light. He said, the disciples said, who did sin? Who, who, who did this? Because they had a wrong concept of how God operated. They thought if you, did, if you are sick and crippled and poor and broke, then you sinned. And God says, no, that's not it. He's like this so that I can get glory. And we're going to continue reading this passage as we go on. But some people, they get hung up right there on how can I trust a God that I can't fully understand or, or, or why it's so hard to understand God. And there's the other one. How can I trust a God that I can't fully understand? You see, you are made in the image of God, but you are not God. We're made after his image. And some of us, we have a hard time with that. 
We have a hard time grappling with these questions where we know to go, we need to go back to the scriptures where the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. He will direct them, but we've got to be able to trust him. Last year, I preached a message. Some of you may remember it was entitled liar, liar, pants on fire. The whole premise of the message was this. We lie. We all lie. We're liars. All right. Your children lie, my children lie. I don't know how young they started. They learned it. I think they learned it from their mom. I can't prove it, but I think so. And so they just started lying one day, okay? And so they're just big liars, and it's just what they are. But here's what I found out. The one person that you and I lie to the most is not our spouse. It's not our boss. It's not our friends. It's not even God. The one person you and I lie to the most is ourselves, Because we always think we're better than we really are. And we always think that everybody else is a problem. We're not the problem. We always think the reason the relationship's having problems is because if that person would just do what God wants her to do, and if this guy would do what God wants him to do, this thing would be all happy, and we'd all be happy. And don't you just want us to be happy? Instead of realizing that, wait a minute, I'm lying to myself. Because we don't see ourselves clearly. We see ourselves like we want to see ourselves. We see ourselves in this great light. We think that we're this awesome person. It's rare when we get that moment where we're seeing ourselves accurately. And so we see in this passage that oftentimes we can fool ourselves into thinking that we know better, that our intellect is so superior. And some of you are brilliant in this room. We have some brilliant people that go to this church, incredibly smart people. And I've gone to you for advice. I've gone to you about uh, finding out, hey, how do you lead business? How do you do this stuff? Because you're just brilliant. But even with the most brilliant mind, our intellect is nothing compared to God's. So even when we confront this major situation, like why do bad things happen to good people? We need to understand our intellect is so limited. And God's is so much higher. And here's what God also says. Not everything that happens is of God, but everything that happens can be used by God. And so we go to Romans 8, 28 and says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That means God says, I'll, I'll take any situation and I can get glory out of it. But a lot of times, have you noticed people are quick to blame every tragedy on God? But it's funny, whenever they have a good day or a raise, it's funny, they don't say, God, be in control. I just got this raise. God, you really blessed. It's rare when I find somebody that does that. Rare. But why is it that the media, newspapers, everybody, even your coworkers, they're like, man, I can't believe God would let a 9-11 happen. I can't believe God would let some, some crazy guy in Connecticut go and shoot up all those little kids. I can't believe God would let that happen. Did God? Really? You can blame that on God? How come you didn't blame that he gave you air to breathe, that he gave you a life to live, that he gave you uh, all the things that you've enjoyed? You don't blame that on God. We only blame the bad things. But the good things is that, man, just my good luck, just my superior intellect, it's just my talent, it's just my ability. Oh, you like to take the credit for that. Oh, okay. Oh, that's, that's great. We're, we're missing it. That God says, wait a minute, I'm in control and I'm leading. So we need to understand that our faith needs to go from concepts to conviction. But not only that, we need our faith to go from control to confidence, to trusting in God. Now, I said God is in control. And for some of you, you put a period after that. Just a period. For some of you, you would say, man, just got to raise. Life is good. The kids are good. And so for you, God is in control, exclamation mark. Things are going well. Some of you in this room, though, God is in control, question mark. 
because your life is spinning out of control. You're looking at your credit cards, and you're saying, what, what's going on? You're looking at the job, and you're like, it doesn't look good. You're looking at relationships, and you're saying, it's spinning out. What, what's going on? God, are, are you in control? I mean, are you? Like, like, I think you are. Here's the amazing thing. <laughs> Not once in the Bible does it ever say that God is in control. But we always say it, don't we? We always say it. I know I'm messing with some of your religion right now. Some of you think that the Bible actually says that God is in control. It doesn't. I looked on the Google machine again. All right? There's, it's not there. Now, we do see where the Bible does say the heavens are and declare the glory of God and the earth and the fullness of his and all that. And we see that he is sovereign over it. But you do not see the exact quote that we as good Christian folk, holier than thou, like to say God is in control. It's not there. So how do you and I wrestle with that tension? How do you, as this blind beggar, if you were to be him, how do you put yourself in that situation who from his birth has been born blind, who hears that God is good, that God is loving? How do you reconcile with that? Because your faith needs to go from control to confidence. You need to get to the point where you say, okay, I don't have to be in control for God to be in control. I I have to release my hands off of this situation and let God step in and let God do something great. Because I find too often we oversimplify the truth that God, that, that, that we oversimplify this truth. And it takes away some of the potency of what God is trying to do. But here's what I find. There are two illusions about the Christian life. That we fall for. It's the illusion, this is why we like control, that with control comes comfort. This is why some of you like to be in control. Because you think, if I'm in control, then life will be comfortable. Because I get to control everything. I get to control the comfort level. How many of you like to control the thermostat in the car? Some of you, you like it really hot. Some of you like it really cold. It's hot, like 100 degrees this weekend. And some of you are like, whoo, do I need a jacket? What about a scarf? It's a little bit chilly. I don't want to catch a cold. I mean, you just like to be warm for whatever reason. You just confuse self, you know? And some of us are like, oh, stripping off the layers, you know? Like, can you know, I'm just going to kind of, you know, just go to church and whatever because it's hot outside. And it's because you've got this thing of got to be in control. And you think with control comes comfort, but the reality that you don't understand is that control doesn't always bring comfort. Some of you in this room, you're the boss. You run the company. You own the company. Yeah, you're, con- you're in control, but you're responsible to make sure the bills are paid. You're responsible to keep the lights on. You're responsible to make sure the company makes more this quarter than it did last quarter. You're responsible to make sure you pay the mortgage on the building. You're responsible to make sure that, that, that expensive medical insurance is paid. You're responsible to make sure that every other Friday everybody's paycheck's clear. You're responsible for all those things. All of a sudden, everybody which thinks that control brings comfort, you're saying, if you'd walk a day in my shoes you would see that with all that control, there's very little comfort. Hey, yeah, it's got some perks, but you'll find that the guys at the top, the perks usually are far less than you would think because that's why there's this glamour, there's this image of control that you and I think that with control comes all this comfort. Jesus Christ, he had all power, all wisdom, everything, and the Bible tells us that he didn't even have a place to sleep. He was a homeless hermit, and he Went about Jerusalem, about that area for three and a half years. Here's a person that all power, he can make money if he wanted it. Life wasn't comfortable. So you and I, we think, well, if I'm just in control, then I'll have comfort. Not only that, we think if we're in control, then we have certainty. Because you think, if I'm in control, I can control the outcome. Really? 
you can control the outcome. The older I get, the more I realize that things are so far out of my control. I can control very little. Even when I'm driving the car, I can't control what crazy drunk person might be on the road. I can't control that. You can't control that. You can't control who may walk into a school and try to shoot that place up. You can't control that. You can't control what disease may attack your body. You can't control that. And so we think, I'm going to control everything, and you're going to do everything you can, and you're going to change your diet, and you're going to send them to a private school, and you're going to get one of those cars that's got bumpers all around it in a steel cage, and you're going to get a special four-point harness buckle in car seat for yourself and your family and everything. And guess what? You're still not fully... And control because your faith needs to go from control to confidence where you are now trusting in God, where you trust him. But so many times we're clinging on to that elusive thread and this illusion that we think we're in control. And we feel like we've got to be in control when we're not. You see, it's very difficult. And here is this blind beggar. He knew things were out of control. He knew he didn't have control. He knew I can't just go down and get some money, have an eye surgery. I, I, I'm out of control. There's nothing. There's nothing I can do in this situation. But then Jesus comes in. Jesus shows up who is in control. Even though the situation around this blind man seemed out of control. And Jesus said, I'm going to change the situation. So when you step into a situation, when you realize that the moment that you're out of control, that's when you find out that Jesus is in control. You see, as long as you're hanging on for that control, you're never going to see that God is fully in control. And some of you, you're so afraid of that. That's why maybe tithing is a big step of faith for you. It's like, oh, I could never do that. Oh, I couldn't trust God with that. Man, and you're wondering why you're not seeing God's blessing in other areas because you're limiting God. You're wondering why you're saying your children are coming up to you and saying, hey, I would love to serve in ministry positions sometimes. You're like, no, 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 there's no money in that. And you're wondering why you're limiting things because you're trying to be in con- control and, 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 and you're seeing areas that God is calling to you and he's in, putting a burden on your heart to do something. You're saying, oh, no, 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 I, no, not, not that. I got to be in control. And there, there's no certainty there. And we're missing the fact that the moment that we step out and the moment we say, God, I can't control this, but God, this is where you can control. And that's when we realize just how strong God is. Some of you don't really understand how strong and powerful God is because you've never ever had an opportunity to really test him. You say, I don't want to have to test him. I don't want to have to trust God. You're missing out on the deepest part of your faith where it sees that God wants to get your faith to go from control to this confidence, this trusting, this resting on him, this control part where God says, hey, I will be there for you. I won't let you down. I'll be there to support you. I will be there to guide you. Instead, we just keep going. I've often told you the story, and I'll tell it again. I have a little brother, and he's way younger than me, and he just graduated high school. And uh, so he's always been just this little guy. And so, so many times, I would say, hey, Jonathan. He'd be at the top of the stairs. Hey, Jonathan, you jump, and I'll catch you. Jonathan would run, and he would jump, flying through the air, and I'd catch him. And we'd do it all the time. I'd say, all right, Jonathan, I'm at the bottom of the stairs. You run, and you catch me. And he'd run, and I'd catch him. Except for one day. I'm his brother, not his dad, so I can do this stuff. He ran, he jumped, and I had this thought. It was like everything just kind of slowed down. It was like the time-lapse feature on your iPhone. 
And Jonathan's like four. He's just flying through the air. Eyes real big. He's real happy. And all of a sudden, I just had this thought. I'm not going to catch him today. And so I did one of these. Wham! And he just fell. And it was awesome. And some of you think I'm a horrible pastor. But it was awesome. It was great. Had to have been there. He lived. He's okay. All right? He's got a slight drooling problem. and But that's okay. Other than that, he's fine. But, uh, you know, no, no, no major head injuries. But it's one of those things where you just think, I could trust this person. I could trust this person. God isn't like me. All right? I'm just here to tell you that. And I'm not like God. I want to be. But I want you to understand, God isn't thinking, they've been trusting me. Watch this, Michael. Watch this, Gabriel. This is going to be so awesome. Get your phones. We're going to film this. This is going to go viral on the YouTube Google machine. And all of a sudden, he's filming. No, God's not looking to mess your life over. God's looking to see you trust him. And God's saying, hey, I will come through. And I will show up. I'll show up. See, God is looking for somebody who he can show his strength through. God is looking for an opportunity. That's what the verse said. Go back to it. You need to look at it. They asked him in verse number three, Jesus, or in verse number two, they said, Jesus, who did this? Why did this happen? Why is this guy blind? Why do the bad things happen in the world today? Why is my son sick? Why is my life like this? Why, why, why? In verse number three, here's what Jesus said. He said, neither did this man sin nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest. God is saying, hey, where can I get glory out of this? Where can I take your story and get glory from it? See, some of you think your past and your story is all messed up and think it's all broken and it's got all this dysfunction. You think that's just some accident, some penalty for your life. God is saying, I'm going to take that story and I'm going to flip it on its head and we're going to get some glory out of that. That exact same story, that exact same burden is going to become a blessing. I'm going to do something because you trusted me. You leaned on me. And God says, that's when I'll show up. That's when I will work in that situation. And that's when you will find yourself in the middle of a miracle. But too often, we as Christians, we just kind of go through life just kind of thinking, I'm a Christian means I don't do anything. I just kind of have to, uh, you know, watch my cussing, watch my drinking, Make sure I don't really uh, beat up too many people. Just got to be a good person, and I'm a Christian. But we missed it. That's not what a Christian is. We've settled for being a Christian. Being a Christian is so much better, so much more. It's not just a greater commitment. It's a greater blessing. And we're seeing that here, Jesus is teaching his disciples a powerful truth. You see, God will put us in positions that reveal his power. Where else did God reveal his power but in a situation that needed his power? Some of you want a miracle, but you don't want to be in a position that necessitates one. You don't want to get to that point where you're so desperate. But we've got to be pushing ourselves. Hey, as a church, we've got to push ourselves out there. I had a meeting this past week with the mall management because we want to do something big. And I sat down and I met with them. And they said, why does the church want to do this for the community? And I said, this is just what we do. This is just who we are. We put everything on the line. We bet the farm. We go big or we go home. It's just what we do. It's our, in our DNA. We're not the type of Christians just to sit back and just be like, man, stinks to be all these people going to hell. Huh, losers. That's not what we're doing. We're here to say, wait, God has put us for such a time as this. We are going to engage. We are going to take the fight to the enemy. We are going to do something. God gave us some time here. It's the greatest time to serve God, to love others, to make some change happen, and to do something with some fellow believers. And that's what we're all about. We're not just here to sit back and say, hey, bless me, feed me. It's all good to be a Christian. Man, this is just great. And we'll just watch the world just go to hell in a handbasket. No, no, no. We're here to be about something, to do something. That's what a church stands 
stands for. And people may look and say, oh, man, it's just a, a little church in the theater, and it's dark in there. And, man, they got, uh, they got issues, and it's, it's, they're just funny. And that, that pastor, that white dude, I don't know about him. And they, they may criticize, and I don't care. Because you know why? The Bible says this. Despise not the day of small things. Because it's the small things that God uses to do some of the greatest things. And God's saying, hey, I want to take a small situation in your life. And I want to do something powerful. But some of us aren't even willing to say, God, here, here, here's what I have. Here's my broken situation. Here's my life that I may look like I got it all together. But I've been trying to control something that's really out of control. And God, I need you. And God, I'm going to trust a person even though I don't know the plan. Because the person is Jesus Christ. And if you love me enough to die for me, to pour out your blood on a cruel cross, let people beat you and mock you and strip you naked and put you up on that cross and take a spear and shove it into your side. And if you hung on that cross for five and a half hours as people cursed you and ridiculed you as you were hanging on the cross and some of your final words were Jesus, were God, forgive them. That's a faith I can follow. That's a man I can follow. It's not just about a church. It's not just about some belief. It's about Jesus. And we're following him. I'm not asking you to commit to me. I'm not asking you to commit to a church. I'm asking you to commit to Jesus Christ. I'm asking you to say, somebody who put their all for you, who died for you, Will you live for him? Will you trust him in this situation? Because I know you've got it all together. It's a Silicon Valley. Come on. You've got to act like you've got it all together. You've got to drive the nicest cars. And man, you've got to be in the nicest clubs. And you've just got to have this image that life is perfect. But the reality is underneath that facade is broken and hurting people who are lost without Jesus. And we're the ones that need to take that message. And we don't need to take them an argument. That's not what our church does. We're not there to go on a street corner and wave a big sign that says that God's wrath is going to be poured on on every gay person. That's not what we're there to do. We're not there to beat on somebody's door and try to thump a Bible on their head and make them change their life. We're there just to simply say, you know what? God died on the cross and he loves you. If you give him the opportunity, he'll transform your life. He'll turn it upside down. Lastly, your faith needs to go from cop-out to commitment. You see, in the same passage, you have some Pharisees, and we're, we're way over time. We've got to wrap this up right now. But in the same passage, there's some Pharisees. They came up, and you can read it when you get home. These Pharisees came up, and they saw this blind man. Instead of being excited for him, instead of giving him a high five, instead of giving him a chest bump, you know what they did? They said, who gave Jesus permission to heal you on the Sabbath day? You can't be doing no healings on the Sabbath day. You can't be doing any of that because the Sabbath, no work, day of rest. See, the Pharisees were all about the law. Remember that? The law. They wanted to leverage law to change people, or we leveraged love to change people. And so these Pharisees, they come and they say, who told you that you could do this? And then Jesus uses an opportunity to teach them their hypocrisy. 
Jesus said, hey, what if your animal, your ox falls in a ditch? Will you go and get your ox out of a ditch? Because if it falls and hurts its leg, are you going to go out there and save it? And the Pharisee said, well, of course, Jesus, I'd get my ox. And Jesus said, you hypocrites. Here's a human life. It's worth more than any ox. And you're bothered that I helped him? You see, you and I, that's somehow what we can do. We as a nation, we've kind of done that with this thing with abortion. And I don't mean to get political, and I don't want to get into that, but we've gotten so far off where we're over here saying we're going to do this one little good thing to save the ox, but we're missing that fact that there's human life at stake. So we need to go from a cop-out to a commitment. See, the Pharisees, they were copping out on their responsibility because they were all about the law. Well, the law says you shouldn't do any work, shouldn't help anybody. And Jesus said, you're using that as a cop-out. And sometimes we could say, well, if God's in control, then I don't have to do jack squat because that's what we said. And some of you, you would think that. Because some of you, you're smart. You'll you argue that in your mind. I don't have to do anything for that church. If God's in control, God will take care of that church. I don't got to do jack. The only problem is you're neglecting your responsibility. Because God has given you a circle, a sphere of influence where you do have control. Some of you are like, oh, God saved me, my physical. I've got all these health problems. And God's like, yes, go on a diet. I can't turn potato chips into kale. It just, I can't do that as you're swallowing it. Like, God bless this and transform it. No, do what's in your control. God, my debt's out of control. All right, cut up the credit cards. God, my marriage is all screwed up. All right, take her out on a date. All right, do what you can do. And don't just say, I'm going to cop out on this. Oh, God, I'm failing at school, and it's just the first few days, and I'm already messing this thing up, you know. And it's God is saying, okay, do what you can do. This guy still had to walk to the pool, didn't he, to get his eyes cleaned? He still had his part. Some of you don't want to do anything. You want God to just do it all, and you just think, I'll just sit here and let God do it because God is in control. And God's like, wait a minute. You still have your part. You still have your part to do. You can't just sit there. If you really believe that, then you, if you, the reason, I'm going to break down your argument right now. The reason you don't really believe that God is fully in control so you don't have to do anything is this. Because if you'd followed that logic all the way through, it means you could sit in a gym and go like this and be like, oh yes, I'm getting stronger just being in this gym. Doesn't happen, does it? No. Same thing. You say, well, God's in control. He could just transform me. Take away my anger. Take away my issues. Take away all this God says, no, you got to do what's in your control. you got to do what you can do. you got to open your Bible sometimes, crack that puppy up, blow off the dust, and say, all right, it's time for me to feed myself. You see, a lot of times we say, God, take control, and not God, be in control. You say, what do you mean, take control? Hey, God, <laughs> hey, Friday night, i got this party and I'm going to go to, but I'll take control over there. Because i got me some needs, and i am got to take care of my needs this Friday and Saturday. But Sunday... Take control. Or Monday, God, I got this interview. It's going to be a big promotion for me. So, God, just take control. But, God, as soon as the weekend hits, can you give me my control back? You're like, God, I want you to take control, not be in control. Which one is it in your life? Because some of you, you're just like, I want to live however I want to live when I want to live that way. But whenever there's an emergency, whenever there's a disease, whenever something bad, that's when, God, you need to take control. You wouldn't take control right now. Wait a minute. That, that doesn't live in such a way that God is in control. We need to live as if God is in control all the time. And then lastly, don't take for granted your ability to participate in the purpose of God. God is giving us a great opportunity, church, a great opportunity. Let us not neglect it. Let us seize this moment. Let's all stand and we're going to pray.